Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Agony of Gentleness. We've all had to face it many times, or if you haven't yet, you soon will. It's the big sweaty giant of revilement. Have you ever felt the pain of responding in gentleness to someone who has deeply wounded you? It's agonizing. But just like Christ, we must respond with gentleness, love, and mercy. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. The Agony of Gentleness. And there's a subtitle to it. I don't always have subtitles. This one has one. The Christian Response to Revilement. Whereas this has a personal dimension in it, it's not just a personal message. This is a body of Christ message. I need to just forewarn you that the body of Christ today is struggling. We have certain weak points that the enemy is playing off of and preying upon. And I don't want us to take our finger and wag it and point it outward outside this building. Because that's the tendency when you deal with messages like this, is to look outward into the body of Christ there, somewhere else, instead of allowing God to bring correction here first. This message is one that I feel very deeply. Uh, Revilement is something that, unfortunately, Leslie and I are extremely familiar with. And just to let you know, no matter how many times I've experienced it, it doesn't get pleasant. Revilement isn't pleasant. The presence of God is present that can come in and through revilement. There is a joy that God can supply. There's a grace that God can supply. But the revilement itself is very unsavory. And it is very unattractive. Uh, And so, I don't know how many of you in here have been reviled. There's a good, there's a chance that some of you have been. Some of us have been reviled in our past because of idiotic things that we did. And people have, in a sense, a just reason for holding us in contempt. But there's two different ways of receiving revilement. Revilement, by the way, no matter where it comes from, does not come from God. It is not something sponsored by God. It is something that is sponsored by hell itself. And it's one of hell's great weapons to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. However, if the church of Jesus Christ responds correctly to revilement, it actually becomes the great offensive weapon in the church. You see, the enemy can play his game, but he takes a great risk in doing it. Because if the saints of God do not fall for the bait of revilement, the bait that is intrinsic in it, it actually will be leveraged against the kingdom of darkness to its destruction. And that's why a message like this is so critical. You see, revilement can come from the world system. It can come from others around you, family members, for bad behavior on our part. In other words, we're rude, we're inconsiderate, we lie, we cheat, we abuse, and guess what? The natural human response is to hold in contempt that which harms us or that which disgusts us for good reason. It's not how a Christian responds, though. I'm just saying that's natural. There's also a form of revilement, which I'm going to spend time on today, which is revilement that comes 
from doing that which is pure and that which is right. Jesus was reviled, and you have to admit, he was guiltless. There was no guile found in his mouth. What he spoke was truth, and yet his words were twisted. His words were made to mean something they weren't. He was was called every evil, infamous title. He was reviled. And yet, it says of Jesus that he reviled not. In other words, our reaction to revilement isn't to respond in like manner. God gives us a very, very specific commission in how we are to respond when people harm us. And this is why this message is titled what it is. The agony of gentleness. Gentleness. Let's, let's just evaluate it very quickly here. Gentleness. Does that sound like a mighty weapon in the armory of heaven? It's like if God, in the midst of a battle, all hell is breaking loose on the reputation of the saints of God. And God goes to his war chest and he says, saints of God, I have what you need. I have help for you in time of need. You need grace, I have it for you. And we're like, okay, give it to me, God. Give it to me so that we can stave off this, this army that is coming against us. And what does he pull out of his armory? What sounds like a feather duster to us? Gentleness? You have got to be kidding, God. What do you think this is going to do? I'm going to tickle their nose with that thing. That's not going to stop the hordes. You see, we oftentimes reason through a natural grid. We look at battle in a natural sense. If someone throws a punch, then you ball up your fist and throw one back. How are you going to meet the challenge of the devil unless you meet it with equal response and equal force? That isn't how the kingdom of heaven works. If you want to leverage all the power of the cross, you have to leverage it in the manner that Jesus Christ himself commissions us to leverage it. And when we do, it's like a nuclear bomb in response to their feather duster. The enemy can whip out his feather duster, and God whips out his nuclear bomb. But it must be unleashed in and through obedience to the word of God. This is a difficult message for me. I don't know if it'll be a difficult message for you, but in the years to come, this is one that you might want to tag. You might want to come back to this and listen to this because some of the things that God is going to bring you through in the future, this message may prove very critical. I remember Jackie Pollinger lived in the walled city of Hong Kong. She had a little small room and almost every night people were in her, women were going through detoxification from heroin addictions and they were all over, laying on her bed, they were all over her floor. She didn't have her own room. And I remember her saying this when she came to America. She said, here in America, you may have your own bed, but I know God's grace. And I remember when she said that, I remember thinking, I'm not exactly sure if I want what she has, but for whatever reason, I'm intrigued. I'm sort of wanting to understand what she knows that I don't. I have my own bed. And to be honest, I would prefer my own bed. But... She said something that intrigued me, and that is that she knows God's grace. And the question that next comes to my mind is, do I really know God's grace? Because when do you learn God's grace? You learn God's grace in time of need. That's the main point in life when we recognize it. And we as Christians, the more we progress in the kingdom, time of need is every moment. 
I tell you what, I understand this at a very significant level. So here's my little rephrasing of Jackie Pullinger's statement. Your name may be cleared and not associated with any criminal activity. But I know God's grace. I know God's grace. My good may be evil spoken of, but I know God's grace. And though the evil spoken of, and though the revilement comes with a very, very real sharpness of the end of a dagger, I know God's grace. The Invasion of the Fun Guys. Leslie and I wrote a book. It was turned over to a publicity department at a publishing house. The publicity department decided to go secular with this book in its marketing instead of uh, Christian. Which, by the, wa- the way, if you haven't read any of our books, our books are not secular books, and the secular community will not uh, treat them well. They would trample them underfoot, and that's exactly what happened. They released a media uh, blitz on this only to secular outlets. And so there were secular outlets that picked it up. The reason they wanted it was to mock it, to hold it in contempt. We didn't know this at the time, okay? So we didn't understand what was happening. We'd done tons of books before this. But our first interview was in Southern California with, you know, some show that they acted like it was an actual real radio station. It wasn't a real radio station. It was a web, uh, like, podcast type of a thing that basically mocked purity. And that's like their... Their business is profanity and sexual deviancy and to trample underfoot anyone who would at all esteem anything of purity. So we get in the, on the phone with them, and they were called the fun guys. And it was uh, uncomfortable from the very beginning, but we assumed that this has been vetted by our publicity team. Publicity teams are responsible for vetting, making sure that this is a healthy lead and that it is worth our while. That's one of our number one things. We have very little time. If we're going to do an interview, it better be worth our while. Okay, so that's our assumption coming in. This was the most profane experience less than I may have ever gone through. They literally started speaking. I remember even thinking, you're not allowed to say that on radio. I mean, I was so horrified. And then they took on Leslie and they began to speak very specifically to Leslie. I said, Leslie, get off the phone. Now, here was my mistake. I stayed on the phone as the man, and I was going to let them know what I thought about it. What do you think they thought about what I thought about it? <laughs> all they did was mock me and ridicule and laugh all the louder, which, of course, what do you think happened to me in, in me as a man? I followed the bait. I was upset. First of all, I knew I was on the side of truth and purity, but the way I handled it, I just want to let you know, was still of the flesh. I was upset. I didn't call any names. I didn't do anything. I didn't curse them. didn't try and, you know, hunt them down. But I was upset. And as we walk through this message, you're going to recognize how revilement works and how the bait works in it. Well, these guys found someone that they really wanted to follow around and track and make miserable. And so we got calls from all over the country. We had another one that was a Christian radio station that called us up from Michigan I think it even had a Michigan uh, area code because I, I got the call. I remember I was at my computer and I think I typed in the area code and it's like, oh, there's Michigan. And it's this guy that's saying, you know, I'm a very conservative radio station in Michigan. Your publicity department said, because I had an opening this afternoon for a radio uh, interview on your book, 
And he said, why don't you just give a call straight to Eric and Leslie. If they're available, you can do the call. That's never happened before, but I said, okay, I guess that sounds reasonable. And so he said, I just have a few questions before we get involved in this. There are certain words I do not want mentioned on my show. I have a very skittish audience. They're very conservative, and they don't want to hear certain words. So he, he said certain words, and he said, I just want you to not share that word. Well, that's fine. We're not going to share that word. He says, well, and he started asking us questions. And it was, he acted, play-acted as a conservative radio host. It was the same guy. Uh, and we got another call from New York, and then another one from Florida. And we were thinking, do we need to change our phone number? But I remember I've never felt so defiled, felt so hunted, felt so demeaned. And there was no protection. It's like we even called and appealed to the uh, publicity department. They didn't care. It's like our business. And the lack of honor in the situation was so shocking. But what I saw was there was a bait in my own soul. I remember, I mean, less than I worked through it, you know, you know, you have to forgive, you have to, but I mean, it's just a very interesting dynamic that you're dealing with in your soul. I had a dream one night, I was right in the midst of this, and I remember in this dream, I was down in the kitchen, and all the lights went off in the house, and I was struck with terror, and I heard mocking voices just all around in the room. And I was just struck with terror in my dream, like I was vulnerable. And I remember I, I, I figured a fuse went out, so I went to the fuse box, uh, and I flicked uh, the, the switch on it, and the lights came back on. So light began to shine, and suddenly I realized behind this door were the fun guys. And so I pressed my body against it and locked them in. They were stuck in there. And then with a superhuman strength, I reached around and grabbed them with one arm and carried them out into the front yard, called the police, and held them captive until the police came and got them. I tell you what, it was one of the most invigorating dreams I've ever had. (laughs) But there was a, a principle in it, and that is what starts out as a shock, what starts out with terror, the enemy works in that business. But when light shines... We actually recognize the strength and the authority we have in Jesus Christ to stand and to not necessarily harm those that are harming us, but to bind that which is harming us and not give it any more voice inside our house. And so I know that sounds sort of maybe ridiculous even. However, you have to realize this is a deep language for Leslie and me. We start getting on this topic, which I don't know if you could ever say that I've ever talked on this topic before. This is a deep well, so I'm going to see if I can just walk through it and do this right. Psalm 35, my enemies speak not peace, but they devise deceitful matters against them that are quiet in the land. Yes, they opened their mouth wide against me and said, aha, aha, I have seen it. I, I feel like that's my mail right there. You know what, I just, I'm just minding my own business. As Hudson always says, I'm sitting on my summer spot and minding my own business. At Ellerslie, that means something. He has a little log that he sits on. He calls it his summer spot. And on that summer spot, he minds his own business. Well, that's what this is. This is a little log here called Ellerslie. I'm just sitting on it, minding my own business. However, everyone else seems to want to mind our business as well. And you know what? That makes for a little adventure in life. The shock of revilement. Revilement works with the shock factor. And if you understand this, you'll be better armed to be able to rightly respond to it. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, if you are reviled, all manner of evil is said against you falsely. You are to be exceeding glad. How many of you, in your natural self, are going to respond that way? Isn't that the most bizarre statement? Now, this is, most of us don't even know what to do with this. It's like, okay, Jesus, give him a big smile, just act like you understand, nod along, but I'm guessing he knows that that isn't actually how things work down here. If you're reviled, you need to revile back. You need to protect yourself. If you allow that to be said and you do not come to your own defense, I tell you what, all hell is breaking loose here on earth. Okay, now I want to walk you through how this works. Three tactics of soul shock. I'm going to give you actually three techniques that the enemy uses in the concept of revilement to throw your equilibrium off in your soul, to get you off balance, and as a result, to get you to compromise in an arena that you wouldn't otherwise compromise in. For instance, some of you in here are not struggling with unforgiveness at this exact moment, and you understand the biblical framework of of forgiveness. You're like, absolutely, if someone harms me, I'll forgive them. I'll turn to them the other cheek. Yeah, it sounds all great, doesn't it, until it happens. And suddenly, you have a justification for why this is the unpardonable. This is different, is it? You must recognize the enemy's technique in this. The enemy knows exactly what he's he's doing. He's been doing it for thousands of years, and he's very, very good at it. However, there's nothing that he does that we can't be fully aware of, and as a result, have light shining on it. He wants to turn out the lights in your life. He wants to strike terror. He wants to bait you for fear, anxiety, foreboding, trepidation. He wants to incite anger. He wants to incite self-evaluation and turn you inward and say, woe is me. He wants to get you to run from your post. This is how he works. If you know how he works, turn on the light. I have a little uh, parenthetical statement here. It says, they travel in twos. Now, when I say they, you can say, who's they? Revilement travels in twos? Well, I don't want to just say that demons travel in twos. I don't want to make this so super spiritual sounding that it ends up getting weird. However, listen to what I'm going to say. The way the enemy speaks travels in twos. He hits you from two sides simultaneously. When he comes in, it's like the symbols on both sides of your head. He is doing two things at once, and that is why it's effective. If he just comes up to you and hits you square in the nose, and then you're like on the other side going, but I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, in this case, the other side of the nose. Well, if you're ready with that, and you don't have the voice on the other side, you're going to handle the situation so much better, but he travels in twos. The hit and bait technique. So hit and bait, two different characters. The job of the hit man. Hit him as hard as you can, as brutally as you can, and as spitefully as you can. Show no mercy and be as unjust and as disrespectful as you can get away with. This is the hitman's job. Whatever his assignment is, he's to come in ruthlessly, aggressively, and make it as unjust as possible. That's a key. Because revilement is a bait, and this is the other side of it. The job of the bait man. If the worst the revilement, the easier it is for the bait man to get you. And so if it comes in and it's just a little knock or a you know, bump in line, you know where you're standing in line, someone walks by and they're incensed, it's like, hey, you know, that can still get us. But the harder the bump, and if they say, get out of my way, and they call you something at the same time, ooh, whoa. I mean, that's just, that's meaty, juicy bait. 
Okay, so the job of the bait man, the moment the hit man hits, look at the bait man, look how he functions. The bait man whispers, that is unjust. That is not right. Defend yourself. Rise up and make this right. For the sake of your reputation, argue. Be mad. Be angry at this unsavory, disrespectful hit at your reputation. It's tactical. And the problem is, that bait man is speaking part truths. And he's speaking to your flesh. That's the danger. Revilement comes in all sorts of different forms. But I want you to recognize that it's tactical on the part of the enemy. He strategizes this to get you and to snag your soul. Because if you respond incorrectly, he's won. That's exactly what he's after. Yes, you can repent. Absolutely. But that's his business, to compromise the human soul. Number two, to the accuse and force inspection techniques. We have two characters in this. Accuse and force inspection. Okay, let me explain. The job of the accuser, well, bring the accusation. If you can build off of real faults or shortcomings, great. But no matter, accuse, whether there be a scrap of truth to it or not. The accuser is going to accuse. If he has real bait to get, you know, to attach it to, real foibles or real issues in our life, oh, great, that just makes it easier. He's going to accuse you nonetheless. That's what he is. He's the accuser of the brethren. This is his job. And by the way, as I go through this list, you're going to recognize that though this is the enemy's tactic, he uses humans to do it. You see, if this was just a spiritual voice out there, that's one thing. But this is oftentimes, and this is why this message stings a little, is he uses us. He uses the body of Christ. If he can wield the body of Christ to do these things, the incriminating level in this skyrockets, and the bait amplifies. If he can get us to do his dirty work, he wins. So the job of the accuser, remember what this is called? This is the accuse and force inspection technique. So the job of the accuser is to accuse. The job of the force inspection officer, the moment the accusation comes, in, in steps the force inspection officer. His job is to try and force the victim inward, to examine self and get caught up in an exhaustive inner evaluation. So to accomplish this, he whispers over and over again, but what if it's true? But what if it's true? Guess what? If you're a good, sound Christian, if someone comes to you with an accusation, you know what? This is only reasonable. I don't, if it's true, dear Lord Jesus, correct me. However, this is part of the enemy's campaign. Here you are, you're focused outward, you're serving everyone around you, and what's the enemy's agenda? To get you inward. To get you overly inspecting and overly evaluating your inner state. This is true. Is this true? You know that God is perfectly able to bring conviction his way? The enemy wants to bring it on his terms through accusation and condemnation. Be very watchful of how the enemy works. This is still the force inspection officer. He plies the soul with concern over the notion that maybe the accuser is right and maybe you really are a terrible criminal. You just don't realize it. The job of the FI officer, force inspection officer, is to endlessly press this point of concern. For the spiritual man who wants to be right with God is vulnerable to the notion that maybe there is something that currently he has not seen. And that the accusing voice may have some validity. Number three, the misery and run technique. So we have two characters again, misery and run. The job of the misery man, to conspire a way to bring difficulty and hardship to the victim. 
devise a scheme that will bring discomfort, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual. It doesn't matter. The key is that it is discomfort, and ideally, great discomfort. The misery man, his job is to strategize bringing about misery to our lives. Now, ironically, if we handle misery correctly, if we handle accusation correctly, if we handle any of these things properly, it actually makes us stronger. However, when you recognize that the enemy wants to bait you here, he brings misery, and then what does he hit you with on the other side? I called it run. It's the run man, the job of the run man. The job of the run man is fairly simple. He yells, run, when the misery man strikes. He shouts, get out of here, go and hide, leave this whole thing behind. The run man also has an ongoing follow-up job to tend to. He also, he also will whisper, you don't deserve this, you deserve better. Why don't you go and do something that would be easier on you? Okay, boy, any of you that have ever spent any time in ministry, wow, how many times have we heard that? Just the staff at Ellerslie, right here. Boy, the run man. Yeah, I, did, I shouldn't have to put up with it. I don't see other, everyone else living normal. They're Christians too. They can live in peace. But I have to get all this. I'm out of here. This is the principle of immovability. You see, the enemy can bring whatever he wants. We don't budge. You need to be aware of this, though. Christians reviling. There's a question mark at the end of that. Is that possible? Is it possible for Christians to revile? Well, there's two answers to that. Yes, on an ongoing basis, if this is a pattern in our lives, no. Christians do not do this as a behavior pattern. We all are vulnerable to following in the enemy's bait, sure. But this is serious stuff in the kingdom of heaven. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. If reviling is coming out of a quote-unquote Christian, you have to begin to question the reality of that person's stance. Christians do not give out brackish water. We give out life. Remember, you will know my disciples by their love. Out of their bellies, out of their innermost, will flow rivers of living water. Not brackish, not salty, drinkable water that brings life. This is an attribute of the kingdom of heaven. And so if we are Christians, we will evidence it in the fact that we do not touch this thing called reviling. If any man among you seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. An unbridled tongue actually showcases the fact that this is hollow and counterfeit. So, just as a rebuke from Scripture, we start here. Not out there. Here. This is serious stuff in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's take anything that's in our eye out, the log in our eye out, the plank in our eye out, so that we can see the speck out there. We need to see clearly first. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. This is the commission of Scripture. I am not the one that recompenses evil, but I must wait for the Lord and he will save us. Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. That isn't how we function as Christians, as will be proven in the New Testament when we start to study just what Jesus says on the matter. 
But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or a covetous or an idolater or a railer, which means a reviler, or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. This is listed amongst the most grievous things. Right up there with fornicator. A reviler is an instrument of Satan in the midst of the church. And if someone is going to call themselves a brother and revile, do not eat with him. Isn't that amazing? That's how strong the terminology is by, from Paul himself. Listen to this one. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. You have to admit this list isn't very nice. Nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. We do not revile as Christians. They may, we don't. We are bought with a price. Our life is made new in Jesus Christ. We evidence his behavior in and through our bearing, not the enemies. Maseo means to pursue with hatred, to detest. Typically, in the New Testament, it's translated as hate. It's a pretty strong word, hate. And there are actually some positive uses of the word hate uh, that Jesus uses. In other words, we actually are supposed to hate what God hates and love what God loves. And so there is another dimension of this, which I'm not going to go into today, but just so you know. But for the most part, this is a construction of the devil. This is his behavior towards the saints of God and towards truth. It leads to what we're terming in this message, reviling. When you hate something, you revile it. Okay, That's what you do. You revile it and you seek its destruction. So what we have is this word, maseo, to pursue with hatred, to detest. I'd like to introduce you to the evil Maseo family. Uh, And so if someone out there that's listening to this message just happens to have the last name Maseo, this was not intentional. Okay, I'm guessing you're probably very nice people. (laughs) But the evil Maseo family, I'm going to introduce you to four characters in this family. Daddy Maseo, he's also known as Revile. Sort of like Bob, his name is Revile. The big guy who gives rise to all the other Maseos. He's married to vilify, and together they labor in the sewer waters of scorn, contempt, and character assassination. Daddy Maseo, a.k.a. Revile, doesn't have one pleasant word to say. He uses his tongue and his pen to attack, and he does his attacking with deep emotional fervor. His agenda is to bring shame upon others, to discredit them, and to attribute evil and sinister motives to what others say and do. Introducing Mama Maseo. She's known as Vilify. But she also has another name that she can go by, and that's Defame. This woman is pure evil. Sorry to say it so bluntly. She heeds the voice of Daddy Maseo without question and does his dirtiest work. She spreads words of destruction. She is a master at tagging innocence with guilt. She can brand spotless purity with the tag of pungent immorality. She can take pure motive and cause others to see it as murderously conspiratorial. She takes simple pastors and brands them evil cult leaders. She takes lovers of children and ruins them with accusations of molestation. She is the accuser of the brethren, seeking to soil the reputation of the children of light. You live in hostile territory, and Vilify is a very, very real player on the scene. Big Sister Maseo, also known as Scorn. Big Sister Maseo is a specialist in the family. 
While her daddy and mama labor in the realm of public battering, she labors more in private. She is personally responsible for bringing them their food and keeping them strong. All day long, she prepares the food that would give, revile, and vilify their strength. In other words, she does their research. She looks for dirt, any dirt that might be utilized to harm. She builds mountains out of molehills, diseases out of drippy noses. Throughout the day, she brings large plates of putrid, exaggerated food to the sewer lands where her daddy and mommy are working. Little brother Maceo, he's known as Mock. Little brother Maceo is not as polished and mature in his manner as the rest of his family. He's a rough character and lacks the deeper intelligence and ruthless conspiratorial abilities of the rest of his family. Long and short, he's a bully. Revile, vilify, and scorn supply for him daily his list of those to pick on and abuse. Where the other three hit upon public reputation and seek to destroy through deceit, little brother, a.k.a. Mock, does his dirty work in a completely different way. His job is to keep the target off balance, turn them inward to self, cause them to question their sanity, get them to hold a grievance or stimulate questions of whether this is really all worth it. Revile, vilify, and scorn seek to erode the foundation, listen to this, while Mock's job is to throw rocks at the windows and thus keep the victim's eyes away from the greater attack. See, meanwhile, while revile, vilify, and scorn are busy undermining the very foundations of credibility, Mock is distracting with rocks and windows. And guess what? When you're used to having a nice clean house and you like your windows to be windows, not holes, it bothers you and it distracts you. The mocking voice of the enemy truly is harmless. It's mocking. And everyone out there that's even listening in knows that. It's like the guy just has a bad attitude. He's a bully. Everyone even knows that. However, we take our eyes off of the real dirty work that's going on and we get distracted with mock. Great strategy by the enemy. Prepare for battle. A couple pieces of advice as you step forward in ministry. Now that's, I know, you could say, well, I'm not planning on stepping forward in ministry after you gave me this message, Eric. You have no choice. You belong to Jesus Christ. That's his decision. And by the way, he does not waste a saint. If he trains and grooms a saint, it is for ministry. Now, that might not be ministry in a foreign land. That might not be building an organization. You might not need a 501c3. You might not need a title over it. You don't need a blog. You minister. You're constantly outward. And when you're outward and focused, you need to realize you're engaged in a very real battle. So... You don't have a choice in the matter. You are called to ministry. A couple pieces of advice as you step forward in this ministry. Number one, do not be soul-shocked. Fix your stance and be ready for the hit. You know, there's two different ways to stand. If someone came up to me and I was standing like this, do you know that if they pushed me in the chest, I would fall over? And it's not because, you know, I always have to fall over when someone pushes me. It's just readiness is what it is. If you know what the enemy's up to, guess what? You just fix yourself. It's like, okay, enemy, I know you're out there. And I'm ready for what you bring. It's a stance issue. You see, if we, the enemy, one of the enemy's number one techniques is to say to us that this is a time of peace. It's a time of peace. The enemy's laying off for a season. Just coast for a while. And what do you think the enemy's doing in that quote-unquote coasting season? He's preparing his biggest hit. Don't buy it. Prepare your stance and recognize that you are in hostile territory. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. What? I can't believe they're reviling me. Hey, beloved, think not it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, 
It's not a strange thing. This is actually quite normal. This is just what happens. And so as a result, you are not going to be soul-shocked. You're not going to be taken off guard with the hit on this side and the bait from the enemy if you understand the battle. If you understand how the enemy works, you're prepared for it. And as a result, you will not fall to the bait of the flesh in the time of testing. Number two, don't just be ready, but be armed. Be armed with the necessary weaponry. Now, when we think of necessary weaponry, we think of tools that look mighty in this natural world. Like entire armadas of people and, and ships surrounding us. In other words, where we are barricaded and the body of Christ is standing shoulder to shoulder, 40 uh, people thick all around you. It's just like, yeah, do your best out there. You can't get through the body. You know what? There's times where you'll be thrown into the prison cell and you don't have the body around you. They can be there in prayer. But I'm saying, in the natural sense, you are weak. God knows this. Christians are built to stand strong in the weakest moments. The armament of God is for weakness. God knows we're sheep. And he knows we're surrounded by wolf packs. And he is not fretting. He is not rubbing his hands together at this moment and pleading with the devil to leave us alone. God holds in contempt and derision those wolf packs. But the question is, are you trembling? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Are you giving access to the devil in God's territory, which is your life? You stand firm and immovable. So you must be armed with the necessary weaponry. Now, the necessary weaponry is going to be a little strange, like I started with. And, of course, you already have a hint of what that is, the feather duster. At least it seems like a feather duster. It's actually a nuclear bomb. But you have to know how to think biblically, kingdom-wise, instead of naturally in this, in this earthen world. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have a time of need. Go and get the grace. We need weapons. Grace is our weaponry. Grace is the enabling power of God to equip us, to empower us to carry out the errands of God, which, by the way, are impossible errands. We can't do it. So what do we need to do it? Grace. And so here we are. We're being attacked. What do we need? Grace. That's actually what we need. That's our primary tool that is used in this earth realm to be able to combat the attack of the devil. I know it sounds weak, doesn't it? Grace, gentleness. It sounds like we're just giving hugs to everything around us. It's like we're ignorant of the fact that this is serious stuff. No, we're not ignorant of these things. And it doesn't mean that's all we do. There's a time to open your mouth and speak. There's a time to be silent as a lamb unto slaughter. But there is something we do, but it must be the work of grace. It can't be the work of our own initiative, our own flesh, our own willpower. Two key graces needed for rightly handling revilement. Here it is. You need the grace of discernment, and you need the grace of gentleness. The grace of discernment is, is important because when someone comes to you, sometimes it has a sweetness in the tone. It's like, oh, I just, you know, I'm really concerned for you. I, I really love you, and that's why I need to say these things to you. And, but what they're saying is actually completely undermining you and attacking you. I just don't sense any love in your ministry. I don't sense that it's genuine. I, I just feel like it's all self-righteousness. I'm just really concerned about you. That's why I've been praying and telling all my friends to pray for you too. I just sense that it, there's an evil work inside of you. 
And so forgive me for being so blunt. I just wanted to pass this along to you, just so you know. Thank you. That's really helpful, by the way. Okay? By the way, Leslie and I can attest to the fact it comes dripping with sugar sometimes. And I tell you what, you have to be wise because when it comes dripping in a feigned love and compassion, it's extremely difficult to discern because it throws you off. It's a tactic. It's a tactic. It's the devil's message to your soul. Here you are. All you're wanting to do is seek God and give him glory. And the enemy is now challenging every motive of your soul, everything you're doing, calling your good evil. It's an interesting moment that you have to walk through because is it evil? I don't want it to be evil. God, search me, try me. I remember I went through, I was attacked quite intensely. The very start of Ellerslie. It's usually one of the reasons why I know that God is doing something huge right now is because I can always tell when the volume of the enemy turns up. When the volume of the enemy turns up, usually it's when God is birthing something, when he's doing something. And the enemy gets really loud. And his, his voice to me is, run, get out, get away from this, save yourself while you still can. So, we need discernment. I remember I spent two weeks straight, every one of my prayer times, Every one of my prayer times, God, search me, try me. If there is any truth in any of these accusations, any of them, search me, try me, know me. I do not want to touch any of this. If I am a self-righteous bigot, if I am actually a fraud and a fake, and actually I don't want to heed the correction of the word of God, if these things are true, show me, please. Two weeks later of doing this, pacing around every morning, God sort of speaks into my fog and says, It's a distraction. My focus was off of Jesus. My focus was off my calling. I know what I'm here for. Let's get to work. The grace of gentleness. You'll understand why you need it. Because your commission is to respond with gentleness. And I guarantee you that's not naturally in any of us. None of us just has this big, huge carrying case of gentleness just naturally in us. When we're being attacked... We have a whole bunch of angst and meanness that's ready to come out. We tote that around pretty easily. But gentleness, the satchel's empty, naturally. So let's go into the first grace, the grace of discernment. The question is, is this marked by the gentleness of God or the harshness of the enemy? Do you know that God responds to us and our meanness in our own life and our own soul the same way that he commissions us to respond to others? How, does, how is he going to... I know we haven't gotten to this yet, but... I'm going to tell you that God commissions us to respond with gentleness. How do you think he responds to us when we're mean, when we're not right, when we're inappropriate? You know that he's gentle with us? You know that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is gentle? It is. He's not condemning. He's very gentle. It's just the nature of God. Yeah, he's a father, but as a father, he doesn't discipline us in anger. He disciplines us in love. And he will be firm. Eric, I can't allow that in your life. That needs to go. But it's still gentle. His tone is gentle. So is this marked by the gentleness of God or the harshness of the enemy? When you have someone coming at you with harshness, with a tone of revilement, with a hint of satisfaction in them that they love to see you squirm. You know what? That's not the way God works. The thief comes but for to steal and kill and to destroy. I am come, says Jesus, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. The nature of the thief, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. You need to know the nature of your enemy. 
That is it. Jesus reveals it right there. He wants to rob, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy. Anything of God at work in your life. Give it up now. God doesn't like your ministry. He doesn't smile upon it. Because if he was, I would know, says the reviler. I'm in touch with the Spirit of God. Have you ever had people come up to you with a word from God? God told me that you need to shut your doors. Oh, did he? Thank you. Again, helps. Words from God, very common amongst revilers. Not saying that God can't speak. I'm saying this is very common. The technique is very fascinating. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above. When someone comes to you with wisdom, but it is based in the root of bitter envy and self-seeking in their hearts, guess what? It is not descending from heaven. might sound like wisdom. It's not descending from heaven. But is earthly, sensual, and demonic is what it says in Scripture. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Listen to this. This is the description of how God speaks to our hearts. When he has given us wisdom, when he has given us counsel, when he is speaking to us about our soul. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The nature of Jesus... It's to bring life that we may have it in abundance. This is his motive. He actually explains it to us very clearly. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life. And he doesn't just desire us to have life. He wants us to have an abundant life. This is his motive. When someone is coming against you, is there desire that you have life and life abundant? Because you know there is a time for correction, and there is a time for sitting down with people and speaking square. There is. So it's not to throw that out. It's to recognize the wisdom. Is it coming from above or from below? We must be watchful. We need the grace for discernment in these matters to be able to rightly handle the words floating around our life. Proutes. I'm going to introduce you to two Greek words that sound just like each other. Here's proutes, and then we have proates. Okay, they're basically the same thing. That's what's weird about this. But we have Proutes, which is the mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, and meekness. And then we have proutes, which is gentleness, mildness, and meekness. So, not to confuse anything, but I just wanted to at least clarify, there are two words used heavily. The second one, right here, is the one most commonly used in the New Testament. So the one that probably most likely is the one you would see in Scripture and recognize. The word Basically, both of those could be easily translated as gentleness, and most translations use the word gentleness. Gentleness, I think, can be a very misunderstood concept, too. Remember, it just sounds like the feather duster. Gentleness demands the greatest strength. To be gentle, the way God de- defines it, a mildness of manner, manner, manner in the midst of violence being thrust against it. That's gentleness. Gentleness, in the most simplistic way, I think I have a definition here. Yeah, the opposite spirit. We can call it the opposite. In other words, when violence comes against us, there's a mildness of matter. Remember Jesus. Jesus literally has the brutality of the wolf pack coming against him, yet he responds in the opposite. He forgives even though they mock and revile. He's doing the exact opposite, and that's gentleness. 
Gentleness isn't weakness. Gentleness is the greatest strength. And it is impossible for any of us to pull off outside of Jesus. So gentleness, the opposite spirit. It's softness when struck with hardness. Mildness when hit with harshness. And a gentle word when belted with a spiteful word. Gentleness is divine control and governance over the inner man. Holding the flesh in check that it not be given voice or strength in the matter. So here's our word. Remember that word, prates? And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In prates, or gentleness, or mildness, or restraint of manner, correcting those who are in opposition. So there's actually a manner, when you are opposed, you are supposed to have prates, that you actually are supposed to have a restraint of your disposition so that you give back the opposite of what is coming to you. It doesn't mean you don't correct them, but you correct in a completely opposite spirit. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in prates, or gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Did you know that your gentleness in response, your restraint of manner and your grace, actually is what cracks open and awakens them? It's so opposite. It's like the Spirit of God leverages. They are the ones spewing out filth, and yet you respond in the opposite spirit, and it actually cracks open a breach in their soul to hear, to understand, and to turn and know the grace of God. Our gentleness is not a small thing. It is a weapon of our warfare that is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of parates. Have you ever had someone come to you in revilement? It's the opposite of parates. But if someone is caught in a trespass, you can tell when they come to you, if they're coming to you in gentleness and mildness of spirit, A true desire to see us established and for life to be cultivated is a completely different thing. I tell you what, I've tasted both. And I prefer parates if you come to me. I really prefer it. If you see something in my life, guess what? The Word of God rules. You bring the Word of God to bear upon my soul and say, Eric, I'm just concerned about this. You can come to me in parates, in gentleness, in a meekness of manner. And guess what? We can see health. That actually lends me the ability to respond more correctly too. I should respond correctly no matter what. That's my responsibility. But guess what? You're lending them a dignity when you come at them the way Christ comes to us. And you give them more space to respond correctly. If you attack and then you get mad at them because they didn't listen, they didn't heed, well, you're actually creating a barrier in their soul by even the way you brought it to them. So it says... Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of prates, gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called with all lowliness and prates, gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Speak evil of no one. Did you hear that? It's a little too straightforward, isn't it? Speak evil of no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing all proates to all men. I, you know, that's, that's Paul talking. It's the word of God. It's canon. It has divine authority to commission our souls 
Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So let's discuss the grace of gentleness. To respond as Christ, maybe I should say this better, to respond as Christ would respond is the greatest weapon that grace supplies. In other words, we have been given the ability to respond in every circumstance the same way Christ would respond. Now, we could discard that and say, well, I don't want that. God doesn't expect that of me. And guess what? You will not respond as Christ would respond. But if you take this grace and you say, Jesus, I can't, but you can. I need what you have. And if I'm going to live in this hostile territory and I'm going to bring glory to your name, I need you in me. I need the grace of God to work through me. The rocks of the wild goats, where the noble separates from the ignoble. I don't know if any of you know the story, but I'm going to read it to you. It's David and Saul. Now, Saul in this story is a bad guy. Saul has been rejected by God. An evil spirit has come upon him. He 21 assassination attempts on what God would call the better man, a man after God's own heart. Not good when you're picking, off, uh, after, picking on a man who's after God's own heart. Saul, hey, buddy, wake up. Not the wisest course of action here. So who's the bad guy in this story? Saul. Who's the good guy? Who's the man walking in purity? All he's doing is following and heeding God. And yet he's the hunted and despised. He's the reviled in Israel. Do you know that Saul turned Israel against David too? All of his mighty men. 3,000 in this one story are hunting him. 3,000 of the mightiest men in Israel. So all the mighty in Israel have turned against David. And he has his little pack of wackos that are hanging out with him in the caves. And so he looks like the offscouring. He's the fringe in Israel. We can just rid ourselves of this fringe when in actuality, who is God defending? David. But listen to this. I'm setting you up for something. Because if you put yourself in David's position in this story, it's really interesting. Because David is in hiding. He's actually sleeping in a cave. Saul has some business to attend to in the cave. Sort of hard to describe, but uh, he has some business to attend to in the cave. And so he comes into the cave and leaves his 3,000 behind. He comes straight into the lair of David. David is in a position to respond in like manner to Saul as Saul has been towards him. He's in his hands. Okay, let's pick up the story. It's called The Rocks of the Wild Goats. 1 Samuel 24. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. By the way, I didn't put that parenthetical statement in there. That's, that's the Bible. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. This is bait. If you've ever had it, you have the opportunity of getting back at the man who has caused you so much difficulty. Who's the bad guy? Mm -hmm. Saul. Who's the good guy? Yeah, David. Watch the story unfold. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, all of us in here could laugh at that, and we could say, go, David. Yeah. Show him. Show him. He was in the palm of your hand, and yet you chose not to harm him. Listen to this. Now, it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. 
And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words. Remember we've talked about gentleness. It's a restraint. There's a bait in front of you. Gentleness is an actual restraint to not do unto others as you would uh, maybe want to be doing, but to literally do unto others as Jesus would do unto them, in our case. God, the nature of God. This is the Lord's anointed. And so David restrained his men. However, this is what's interesting. He's convicted over the fact that he cut off the end of the cloak. Have you ever had it where the mean guy comes into your life? He's the bad guy. He's carrying around, I mean, just logging around revilement and carnality. And here you are minding your own business, being all sweet and pure, and he comes up and belts you across the cheek. So you turn and clip off a little of his cloak. It's like, hey, it's just, a, I could have killed him. I could have done some big thing in response. Could have posted a blog entry about it. But instead, all I did was clip off a little of the cloak to let him know that I'm restraining myself. A little flesh is all the enemy's looking for. A little cut of the cloak is all the enemy cares about. The enemy wants to bait you, and he's saying, just cut off the edge. You see, he knows most of us aren't going to ball up a fist and knock someone in the nose. But he can get us to clip off the end of the cloak. David is cut to the heart. Most of us are thinking, come on, David. Something's funny about your conscience that you would feel guilty about that. Are we feeling guilty about cutting off the cloak? Are we? Because this is serious business in the kingdom of heaven. The enemy is baiting us at every turn. And we do not ever respond in the flesh. I know it would feel good for a moment. We can ask forgiveness and move on and be all nice from that point forward. The bait is tangible to many of us. You're hit on one cheek. You have the voice on the other. Come on, just give in for a moment. That one moment can be your destruction. You must be watchful. The way you respond to the bait of the enemy is literally the illustration of heaven on earth or hell on earth. So where were we? So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. 1 Samuel 24. Let the, Lord judge, let the Lord judge between you and me. And let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. This is David in the next sentence. Just listen to this. Let the Lord judge between you and me. And let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. This is a deliberate choice of the soul. Let the Lord deal with this. My hand will not be against you. Though yours may be against me, my hand will not be against you. The commission to gentleness. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. 
But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You want to be a son of the Father in heaven? Behave as the Father in heaven. That list is so outrageous to many of us. It's like, he doesn't actually mean that. And some of us actually have elaborate scapegoats that we use when we're reading this. And I have to admit, there are certain things in Scripture that, you know, it says, do not resist evil men. It also says, resist the devil and he will flee. So there is a point, and I've had many messages on this, there's a, there's a point to resist and there's a point to not resist. But there's a difference. The devil and evil men. Evil men are men. The devil is spirit. You always resist the evil spirit. Always. Even when evil men are coming against you. But the evil men, you learn how to handle the way the Father in heaven is teaching us to handle them. With gentleness. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Isn't that an amazing statement? He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. When we are, we're establishing a framework for our life. When we respond properly, did you know that that's the way that God is able then to be able to respond to us? In other words, we seek God's grace. We seek his mercy. We desire his gentleness, but we're unwilling to give it to others. And yet, who is the worst perpetrator? Them against us or us against our God? We are deserving of hell. They might be deserving of a slap on the wrist. And yet, we will hold back gentleness and mercy from them. And we will judge them and condemn them. And then expect a different treatment from God. God says, if you are unwilling to forgive, then he will not forgive you. To the same measure that you're willing to be a flow-through channel for the behavior of the Father and the grace of God that is bequeathed to you, God is able to respond to you. I desire my God to be gentle with me, to be long-suffering and to be patient with me, which demands that I become a flow-through channel of his gentleness and mercy towards others. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is one of our final scriptures. I want this to be a meditation in 1 Peter 3. One of the things about 1 Peter is it's a meditation in what I would call honor. The behavior of heaven come to earth. Everything we're talking about today is not the natural behavior of men. There is a dignity. There is a nobility. You see, Paul, or I'm sorry, Saul may behave ignobly, disrespectfully, and disregard the true purity in David. That's understood. That just happens in this world. However, David must respond nobly. And he did. 
Though there was the bait and though he did cut off the cloak, he quickly repented, he made it right, and he established his position amongst his mighties. No more. No one touch him. Lay not your hands upon him. He is the Lord's anointed. And for us, we do the same thing. If you find yourself allowing a little bit of the cutting off of the cloak to take place, repent, be cut to the heart, stand firm and restrain your soul and speak the same thing that he did to his mighty men. No. Oh, my soul, no. No, you will not wage war within me. I will not entertain those thoughts. I will not diminish this life, but rather I will choose to bless and to pray. And I command this body to get airborne and to leap for joy, for I have been falsely accused. I agree with God, not with the bait of the enemy. So 1 Peter 3, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you, remember vilify? When they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And in a sense, it's the same for us. There's a putting to death of the flesh. Not giving it voice, not giving it any allowance, actually feeling, I, I tell you what, I don't know how to describe it, but when you are falsely accused, it really is pain. It's a very real pain. It hurts. But it's not you wouldn't even just call it an emotional pain or a psychological pain. I don't even know what to call it. It's like, it's, a, it's not just a wound. It's harm that's being brought against you. And you can have a hollowness in your gut, a weakness in your knees. And yet that is the very moment that Christ says, leap. There might not be any strength in you to leap, but you need to leap. This morning, I didn't get... Uh, breakfast, and I had a couple bites of a, uh, what was it called, peach blunder? Uh, a peach blunder, uh, a little muffin, and I just, I mean, little, a couple bites, and I was really weak coming out of uh, a time this morning with some men, really weak, and I, Sandy said, do you need something to eat? And I said, yes, however, I think it seems only appropriate that I be weak for this message, because there's something about that weakness that I've been experiencing in revilement that is allowing a greater strength to course through me. 
And so this morning I chose weakness to sort of match with the message. Because that's literally how I've been feeling. But I am a firm believer that though I be weak, he will prove his strength in and through that weakness. Gethsemane, 2,000 years ago. And being in an agony, it says of Jesus, he prayed more earnestly. You've never seen an effect upon a prayer life until you go through these things. Suddenly, your prayer life, which was starting to lag, becomes a very real prayer life. And it's not just a prayer life of pleading for reprieve. It's a prayer life that groans, deeper groans. You see, when you experience pain for standing for Jesus Christ, there's a well that opens up. It's a well of identification with Jesus. And you begin to recognize what Paul is talking about. When he says things, whereas before it's just you understand it theoretically, but now you're invited in. You're invited in to share in something with those that have gone before us, like the cloud of witnesses is suddenly saying, come on, why don't we share in the fellowship? It's deep, it's rich, it's powerful, it's living. doesn't make it easy. A prison cell probably doesn't feel good on the human body. Death to the flesh, but life to the spirit. It's Christianity in a nutshell. There's an agony that we accept as Christians to stand and to do what is right in a wrong world, to speak that which is right, but we speak it gently, in a world that is hostile to that which is right. And we will be reviled, we will be persecuted, we will be mocked. There is an entire family that is set to destroy us, known as the kingdom of darkness. And they function with revilement, vilification. They function with scorn and mockery. And don't think you're an exception to the rule because you're dealing with some strange trial. This is how it started. The entire church of Jesus Christ started under the threat and under the blows of revilement, vilification, scorn, and mockery. The strength of the church was born out of that endurance and weakness. So I say, let's allow the cross to be revealed in our day. I want us to choose this day to not accept the bait of the enemy. To not dig your fork into that stake that says, fight back. Defend yourself. There is a very real defense of the truth of Jesus Christ in this generation that we must stand up for, but not in a fleshly way. We must be wise to uphold the truth in a carnal generation and in amidst a carnal church, but we do it God's way, not the enemy's way. All right? Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.